Welcome to the podcast of Grandview Baptist Church in Anchorage, Alaska. This episode contains a sermon from September 5th by Pastor Randy, titled The Seven Churches of Revelation, the Churches in Pergamum and Philadelphia. All right, so we have been looking at the seven letters that Jesus wrote to churches in Revelation. And what you see in each of these seven letters is things that Jesus expects from his church, what he wants from us, things that he believes are completely critical because he says you can have a lot of these good things going on, but if you don't have these seven things, you're, you're a disobedient, faithless church. So we need to pay attention to it. That's why he says in each of these letters, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Because it's so critical that we understand what he wants from us. And we saw in the letter to Ephesus where he wants us to love him. We saw last week in the letter to Smyrna how he wants us to endure suffering. And we talked about how we need to to stand up with the persecuted church in the world, but how the same things they need to experience going through suffering, we need to have the same qualities in our life too. And today we're going to actually, we're going to look at two churches. We're going to look at the one at Pergamum in Philadelphia. And in Pergamum, he wants us to hold to the truth. Now, just a little bit of background on Pergamum. They were a capital city. And their claim to fame was their huge library. They had a library, the second largest in the world, known world at that time, over 200,000 scrolls. And when Egypt refused to sell papyrus to them to to write on, they made parchment, parchment from animal skins to to write on. And, And even more parchment comes from Pergamum. So that's what we're going to look at today. Let's start off. In Revelation 2, verse 12, write to the angel of the church in Pergamum. Thus says the one who has a sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan's throne is, yet you are holding on to my name and did not deny your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death among you where Satan lives. So he talks about this place where, where, where Satan lives, where his throne is at. And there's several reasons for that. Number one, there were four temples dedicated to emperor worship in Pergamum. Uh, altar to Zeus was there. Uh, the uh, uh, temple to the Greek god Eclepius w- was there. And that's the god of medicine, whose symbol was a, a, uh, a stick with two snakes wrapped around it that's still used today. But also... In Pergamum, as it says, the Capsius where the governor lived who had the authority to kill anyone who wasn't seen as loyal to Rome. And that's apparently what he did to Antipas. Listen, we are increasingly living in a culture where if you claim to be a Christian, you claim to, to believe that, that God created the world, that, that he rose from the dead. You claim to be that he is the only way to God. We live in a culture where we're increasingly being looked at as Dangerous, even evil, anti-women, anti-gay, anti-intellectual, intolerant, ignorant. There's an increasing amount of pressure, political pressure, economic pressure, social pressure. And what Jesus is saying to us is that, look, in the midst of that, you need to hold to the truth and not walk away from the truth. That's what he's trying to, 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 that's, that's coming across here in this letter. The next verses, but I have a few things against you. 
You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites to eat meat, sacrifice idols, and to commit sexual immorality. In the same way, you also have those who hold to the teachings of Nicolaitans. All right. One of my favorite stories, and one that I know everybody knows, is when the Greeks were laying siege to Troy. For 10 years, they tried to get into the city of Troy, unable to do it. So Ulysses had a wooden horse made left at the gates of Troy while he and his army sailed away in apparent defeat. And that horse was like a tribute to the unconquerable Trojans. Well, in their pride of, of you know, have never been defeated and, and putting off the Greeks for 10 years, they bring the horse into the into their city, open up the gates and bring the horse in, even though a priest named Lacoon said, I fear the Greeks even when they come bearing gifts. And he brought the horse in. We all know what happened. That night, soldiers from Greece crept out of the middle of that horse, opened the city gates, and let the Greek army that had snuck back in in the cover of darkness snuck back in. They came into the city, uh, killed, pillaged, destroyed, burned. And so for over centuries, the Trojan horse has been a sign of infiltration and deception. What they couldn't do in 10 years, they accomplished with just one night, one little deception. And that's what he's trying to get across here to the church. That there's a truth out there that you're being deceived about, that, that you're not believing there's a deception that's contrary to the truth, and it's, it's dangerous. It has the potential to destroy your lives. And the deception, the Trojan horse that they were holding on to, that they were letting into their lives, was the teachings of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. Now, the story of Balaam, we go, go back to Numbers chapter 22 for that. That's when the Israelites were going through the wilderness. And they had just defeated the, the Amorites. And now it looks like Moab is going to be next. And so Balak, king of Moab, he goes and hires Balaam to curse the Israelites. But every time Balaam tried to curse the Israelites, blessings came out of his mouth. And so Balaam says to Balak, look, God's not going to let me curse the Israelites. But if you'll send your women out to seduce them into idol worship and immorality, God will take care of them for you. And so Balak did send all his women out to seduce all the, the males of the Israelites into, uh, into idol worship and immorality. And guess what happened? God struck 24,000 Israelites dead. Now, these people who are teaching this, they're not going to the church and saying, look, let's quit following Christ. Let's just turn our back on him. Let's forget about doing that. Let's do something different. They're not saying that at all. What they're saying is, look, keep following after Christ, but it's okay to be involved in immorality. It's not going to hurt. And Jesus is not condemning them for getting involved in immorality as much as he's condemning them for allowing people to teach that. He says, you're not saying anything. You're tolerating them. I mean, you can't stop them from sinning, but at least you can let them know you're not happy about it. And so we see tolerance, not truth, but tolerance. And in our culture today, it's tolerance, not truth, that, that is held as being more valuable. And when that gets into the church, it's dangerous. It's dangerous when the church's favorite color is gray. 
And we don't want to hold to the teachings. We don't want to hold to the truth. And what's the truth that they're walking away from? The truth that sex is for married people. And they're walking away from that. Getting involved in idol worship and immorality. Let's look at some characteristics for the, of the truth. First of all, the truth is objective. The truth is true even no one believes it. The truth is true even if everybody votes against it. The truth is true no matter what. I mean, even though everybody believed the world was flat, it was still round. The truth is still true even if nobody else holds to it, even if Oprah and Dr. Phil speak against it. It's still true. Okay? Next thing, truth is exclusive. It's not relative. So you can't say it may be true for you, but it's not true for me. And herein lies the problem because all the little surveys and polls that they take said there's very few Christians in our churches that actually believe in absolute truth. Here's the thing about truth. There's a direct correlation between what a person believes and how a person behaves. Of course there is. And the Bible talks about this a whole lot. David says, thy word have I hid in my heart. Your truth, I think about it. I know it within me. Why? So that I may not sin against you. Paul says, the mind set on the spirit is life and peace, but the mind set on the flesh is what? Death. Yes. So what does it look like for somebody to... Uh, to forsake the truth for a lie and get involved in immorality. Because that's what's going on here at Pergamon. What does that look like? When somebody says, yeah, I know, it's okay to, to, to watch those movies and, and look at that stuff. It's okay to do that a little bit like I am because we're so much further than the rest of the world. So much better off than the rest of the world. Or when they say this, I've got a piece about it. They're involved in these, these wrong relationships and they'll say, but I've got a peace about it. God's given me a peace. Listen, if you want to get involved in that, go right ahead, but don't tell me God's given you a peace about it. Or, or how about this one? Some think to themselves, I can handle it. I'm not going to let it come in and destroy my life. I'm not going to become addicted like that. I'm not going to, to let that come in in that relationship or that substance or whatever is coming to destroy my life. I'm not going to let that happen. Well, Solomon was the wisest man in the world. He couldn't handle it. Samson, the strongest man in the world, he couldn't handle it. David, the one who had a close relationship with God, he couldn't handle it. But okay, but you can handle it. You're so much wiser and stronger and have a so much more close relationship with God that you can handle it. I don't think so. Whenever I hear of a Christian dating a non-Christian, I think they're being deceived. Because look, I know there are a lot of smart non-Christians out there and there's a lot of good-looking non-Christians out there and, and, and there's a lot of rich non-Christians out there. There's a lot of nice non-Christians out there. But if you're a Christian, as soon as the word non-Christian comes into play, it's a, it's, it's a no-go at that point because you can't let human relationships determine spiritual truths, spiritual values in your life. So the bottom line is this. If you think... You can, you know, go see the, the magic mics and the 50 shades of gray and, and be involved in those immoral relationships. You're deceiving yourself. You're deceiving. You're letting the Trojan horse into your life. And guess who's not happy about that? 
Who wasn't happy about it in Balaam's day? Yeah, I don't mind you answering that because I want you to know. And here's what we read about in Pergamum. So repent. Otherwise, I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. You think the governor has a sword to put you to death? I've got a sword too, Jesus says, and you're not going to like it. Because I'm going to come and deal with those who have forsaken the truth for a lie. Who's turned their back on the idea that sex is for married people and they thought they could get involved in morality and it'd be okay. It's not okay. I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. That should be terrifying. And then he says this, let everyone who has ears to hear, listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give him some hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone and on the stone a new name is inscribed that no one else knows except the one who receives it. So see, he wants us to be conquerors. Why? You have to have something to overcome to be conquerors. So he says, overcome this and I'll give you hidden manna. I'll satisfy you in a way that the world can't. And I will give you a stone to signify your mind and, and a name to signify that, that you have a changed life. We have to get away from this idea that we can compromise, that we can let a little bit of immorality in our life, let people in who are saying, oh, it's okay. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I'll go ahead and sleep with them, sleep with her. And, and, and we'd be not saying anything about it. And again, he's upset with them because not that they're the ones going out committing immoralities because they're tolerating the ones who are and not saying anything. He says, you got to get rid of this. Now, on that note, let's move to Philadelphia. Because one or two of these times, we got to catch up two churches in order to beat time for our next emphasis in October. So we're going to do two today. Philadelphia, as we switch gears, another one of these cities that Jesus writes these letters to. In fact, you can go to the ruins of all these cities today, but if you go to Philadelphia, there's not a lot of things there. There's, there's not much ruins left. And the reason why it's something that we can identify with is because of earthquakes. There's one time in a 25-year period they had about 15 major earthquakes. So you don't build a lot of Temples, you don't build a lot of fancy buildings and things like that and tall buildings in the place where they're having so many earthquakes. In fact, there's a point where they're having so many aftershocks, the people were living outside the city in the open fields because they didn't want the buildings to fall upon them. And the people who were in the city, they're constantly shoring things up and trying to keep things from falling down. But apparently... This city, this church in this city lasted a long time. Jesus is going to say later on this church, I, I've made you a pillar and you'll never have to go out again. That matters a lot. To, to, uh, it speaks a lot to a church experiencing what they were experiencing. But this church lasted up to the 14th century. So they apparently listened to what Jesus had to say. Now, Philadelphia was also a city that was established to take the Greek culture to the barbarians. 
And Jesus also addresses this a little bit. We'll see how he says, I've given you an opportunity to take the gospel into places to affect the world with the gospel. So we'll see that too as it comes to place. So let's start here in, in Revelation 3 to the church of Philadelphia. To the angel of the church of Philadelphia, thus says the Holy One, the true one, the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will close and who closes and no one opens. I know your works. Look, I have placed before you an open door that no one can close because you have but a little power, but yet you, you have kept my word and have not denied my name. He's used this metaphor that's all throughout scripture of an open door being a metaphor for an opportunity. That, that's what we see over and over again. This is a common metaphor in scripture. What Jesus says is that he expects his church to make the most of the opportunities he provides. That's what he's saying to them. Listen, I put opportunities before you. You need to make the most of that because if you don't, you risk becoming like that servant when Jesus told the parable of the talents, like that servant with one talent who took his talent and he hid it. That's a tragedy of a wasted opportunity. Here's what we read in Ephesians 5, 16, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Here's the, uh, the, the thing we need to realize. We don't want to let those things slip away. Now, I know that taking advantage of an opportunity, that doesn't you know, hit home like you're not loving Christ or, or a suffering church or you're not holding to the truth that, that sex is for married people. I know it doesn't hit like that, but listen, we mess up here probably more than any other area. This is one of those things that we don't see as a big deal, but what I want you to see is Jesus sees it as a big deal. So we need to listen to this. He's saying, I placed before you an opportunity. You need to take it. Just like they were to penetrate the barbarian culture with the Greek culture and the Greek language, he's saying in the same way, you need to take advantage of the opportunities you have with the gospel. We play the fool with this more than we realize. And then he says, but you have a little power. See, don't make the mistake of thinking you have to be a big church with a lot of resources to take advantage of the opportunities Jesus has for you. He wants us to be faithful in what he's given us. He just wants us to be faithful and go through the doors, the open opportunities that he has for us. It's a myth that a church has to be big and powerful to be effective. See, the problem with us is that we have not closed doors. We have closed eyes that we don't see the opportunities before us. Charlie Brown's on the mound pitching. The bases are loaded. Linus comes out to the mound to give him a pep talk. Linus gets to the mound. Charlie Brown says, we're doomed. Linus says, no, we're just surrounded by insurmountable opportunities. And that's what Jesus wants the church to see, that they have these opportunities. It's all before them. But when you have opportunities, there's going to always be opposition. In the midst of opportunity, there is opposition. It was going to come. See, we think open door means an easy way. No. Whenever there's opportunity, there's going to be opposition. Remember what Jesus tells each of these churches. Conquer. I'm expecting you to conquer this. So whenever we have an opportunity, we're to conquer those difficulties and walk through that open door because there will be opposition. We see this all through Scripture. 
Acts 14, after they arrived and gathered the church together, they reported everything God had done with them and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. This is Paul giving a report of what's going on. And he says that God's opened the door for faith to the Gentiles. But remember, he went through a lot of beatings and sufferings in those cities. But he said, no, it was an opportunity. In fact, he says this, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost because a wide door for effective ministry has opened for me, yet many oppose me. There's opportunity, but there's opposition. We don't see those things going together, but Paul mentions them together right there. Great opportunity, but a lot of opposition. He says here, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though the Lord opened a door for me, I had no rest in my spirit. So he's saying, look, I had an open door, but yet there was no rest in my spirit. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open a door to us for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Paul's writing this to the Colossians when he's in prison. And later on, if you started this in Sunday school, he writes to the Philippians. And in this letter to Philippians, he says, the whole Praetorian guards heard the gospel. There was an opportunity while he was in chains. The opportunities are there. Jesus is faithful to provide the opportunities, but he redefines opportunity for us because we think opportunity means, oh, it's so easy, I can just walk on through. It's like God just opened the door for me. Yes, there's going to be opportunities, but with opportunities, there's always going to be opposition. And we need to be a people who go, oh, there's opposition. That's not an opportunity. Let me go do something else. God says, no, 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 that's an opportunity. There will be opposition. That's just part of it. Then verse 9. Note this. I will make those from the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews and are not but are lying. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and they will know that I have loved you. I've been thinking about that verse every day. When people come and they say, you know what? You are the body of Christ. You are loved by God. When the world comes and does that, and sometimes I'm hoping I just wish the church would do that and say, we are the body of Christ. But I, I just been, I, every day I stop and I, I'm thinking about that verse, you know, what, what I want to say about it. And, and I, just, I just marvel at it. Just thinking about the truth. And then verse 10, because you kept my command to endure, I will also keep you from the hour of testing that is going to come on the whole world to test those who live on the earth. So he says, you don't have to go through this final test. And I got thinking back in college, every once in a while I had a professor and would come time for the final exam, he'd say this, look, if you have an A or a B in the class, you don't have to take the final. Because you've already proven you've mastered the material. You've had all these tests. You have all these quizzes. You've done all these papers. You know the material. So you don't have to take the final if you don't want to. And that's what he's telling them. Because of, of, of where you're at, I'm going to keep you from the final test. And then he says this. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crown. Don't let anybody take your place. Don't let that happen. Hold fast or you might lose your place. Esau lost his place to Jacob. Reuben lost his place to, to, to uh, Judah. Saul lost his place to David. The Jews lost their place to the Gentiles. Don't lose your place because 
because you don't take advantage of the opportunity that God gives you. That's what they did. They didn't take advantage of the opportunities. And yes, they had things to conquer, but they didn't. And so they lost their place. Don't let that happen to a church. And then this, the one who conquers, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God and he will never go out again. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. So he says to conquer. When there's opposition, we have to conquer. We have to, from Pergamon, we have to hold to the truth. But from here we conquer by taking advantage of the opportunities that God lays out for us. And let me just insert a commercial here. Some of you, you have an opportunity to get involved in a small group in a couple of weeks. To be involved in it, you have that opportunity to go from not being in a small group to being in a small group. You have an opportunity to, to be involved in a small group where you have a chance to, to get involved in the lives of a few group of people and spur each other on and encourage each other and hold other people accountable. You have an opportunity to do that. We have opportunities to minister to a broken world all the time. We need to take advantage of those opportunities. Because then he says this, let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. So repent and listen. Okay. Repent. If you have ears to hear, it's time to hear. In, in the church at Pergamum, he, he, before he says this, he says, repent and listen. I think it's no mistake when Martin Luther nailed those 95 theses to the, to the Whittingham church door, that the first one said this. It said, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he meant that the entire life of believers be one of repentance. So is that what you need to do? Because some people are compromising. They're compromising the truth that sex is for married people, and they're compromising. Some are compromising that the church is the body of Christ. Some people aren't taking advantage of the opportunities, and Jesus takes these things seriously. Look at the consequences that he says to these churches. One, I'm going to come remove your lampstand. I'm going to come and I'll make war with you with the sword of my mouth. There are consequences to us not being what he wants us to be, what he expects us to be, what he's given us the ability to be. And there's only one option. It's to repent. Or you can go on as if nothing's wrong, as if everything's okay. How could you think everything is okay in the culture we live in today? How could you think, I'm okay, I don't need to change anything, I'm doing okay? How can we do that? Well, that's the church of Laodicea coming up in a couple of weeks. We'll get there. But what about you? What opportunities has God given you that you don't see because there's some opposition there, so you think, oh, they're not opportunities? Opportunities to minister, opportunities to take the gospel. I mean, they're there. They're all around us. And have you compromised with the truth? 
God doesn't take that lightly either. So the only thing left to do is to repent, right? That's your option. Repent or Jesus will deal with us. That's where we lie. Thank you for tuning into the podcast of Grandview Baptist Church in Anchorage, Alaska. For more information, check out our website at gbcak.org.